Hello, cinefans. I'm Kendall Groover, and this is Watching Classic Movies. In 1973, filmmaker Bill Gunn's vampire addiction movie, Ganja and Hess, was a sensation at the Cannes Film Festival. Starring Dwayne Jones, Marlena Clark, musician Sam Wayman, and Gunn himself, this mysterious, fascinating film should have been an art house sensation in the States. Instead, it played a single New York theater for two weeks before it was pulled and eventually re-edited in a more conventional manner for the exploitation market. I talked with Christopher Seaving, author of Pleading the Blood, Bill Gunn's Ganja and Hess, about the film, Gunn's greatest works, and the career this remarkable director, writer, and actor should have had. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's start from the beginning. What brought you to Bill Gunn and Ganja and Hess? Good question. I started writing papers about African-American cinema in the, in the 60s and 70s. And I would occasionally come across reviews or articles or books that mentioned Ganja and Hess, like James Monaco's book called American Film Now. And in, in the mid-90s, before DVD, yeah. I never really knew if I'd ever have the opportunity to actually see the film. And then, very early on in the history of the DVD format, this company, very small independent company, put out a, a DVD of the original cut of Ganjin Hess. It actually was missing one scene at that point, so it was two or three minutes shorter than the original cut. But otherwise, it was the film. You know, it, it wasn't the recut version of the film that had been so widely available on VHS in the 80s. Well, usually under the title Blood Couple, but also had many other stranger titles. I don't think I even had a DVD player. <laughs> I uh, bought the DVD, ordered it, and watched it, and you know, watched it again, and it was fascinating. I tried to integrate it into my own teaching. I just started to lecture my own film classes at Wisconsin, and I had in my mind a thought that maybe I'll do something about this film someday. And this is at a point where still pretty much nothing in terms of academic literature had really been written about this film. I discovered, I guess it was actually one of the extras on the original DVD, but there was a very long article in the fanzine Video Watchdog about Ganjin Hess in the early 90s, which was far and away the most in-depth feature piece that I, I'd ever come across about the movie. So it, my idea to maybe do something related to Ganjin Hess went on the back burner for a while because I was writing a dissertation. And as it turns out, ultimately the dissertation took shape where I decided I would focus on African-American cinema or Black-themed cinema in the 1960s in general, but... All of the chapters would be centered around case studies, individual films that I thought might be representative of larger trends within Black cinema in the 60s. And one of the films I ended up writing about was The Landlord, because Norman Jewison's papers were deposited at the Wisconsin Historical Society. So there were script drafts, and Bill Gunn wrote the script to that film. So the chapter I wrote on The Landlord ended up to a significant degree to, you know, to be about Bill Gunn's various screenplay drafts. So I did start to do some research about his career. And, you know, after the dissertation was, was completed, I turned it into a book, you know, about five or, or so years after that. And after the book came out, 
I was starting to think about a possible second project and I had already done, done so much research about Bill Gunn. I think I found a collection of Bill Gunn's personal papers was deposited at the, uh, the New York Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center. And what did you discover there? Quite a few scripts. Yes. Uh, there were a couple of, a couple of drafts from Ganjan Hess one of which seemed like the very earliest draft. There's a lot of disputes over exactly how how the whole project initiated. The surviving executive producer says that he was approached by Bill Gunn with an idea for, in his words, like for a comedy about vampires. Bill Gunn's partner, Sam Wayman, says that never happened. <laughs> And I think Bill Gunn himself said that he actually was given a script of some sort called The Vampires of Harlem that was just trash, but, but Quinn Kelly, who was you know one of the two founders of, uh, of Kelly Jordan, the production company that, that backed Gunjin Hess, recruited Bill Gunn to rewrite this script and direct it. And that was... The, the raison d'etre behind Kelly Jordan Productions was Quentin Kelly and his partner Jack Jordan formed this company that would, this is at the absolute height of the black exploitation cycle, when all of these black directed movies and black cast movies and black themed movies are making not always spectacular, but you know very steady profits, no matter how many of these films saturated the marketplace. So Kelly and Jordan wanted to create a, started out as a production company and then became its own distributor, where they would take care of the arty market uh, within the larger black film market, and that they would, and this largely comes thanks to the various connections that Jack Jordan had made over the years, they would recruit African-American intellectuals and acclaimed or esteemed artists, several of whom were expatriates, to write and direct movies for their, uh, for their company. The very first thing that they did was to produce an original screenplay by Maya Angelou called Georgia, Georgia, which was a, you know, a relative success when it came out in 1972. And Kelly Jordan soon announced projects. Angelou was slated to direct an adaptation of her own book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. She would have been, I guess, the first African-American woman to direct a commercially released feature film. This is almost two decades before Julie Dash and Daughters of the Dust. They signed a contract with James Baldwin to write an original screenplay that he would direct in Europe. That blows my mind. Yeah. In fact, I'm working on a conference paper right now about that project. In one sense, it's strange that given, you know, the company's overall objective to make these arty films that were written and directed by these very highly thought of Black writers and, and artists and try to corner the market for, you know, what they called high quality Black films. They were very much trying to differentiate their projects from the shafts and the superflies. So like the more exploitation right. kind of yeah. genre thing. Okay, yeah. I don't understand how they could be that way. The film it had a can, it had this amazing reception. So I'm trying to understand how they went from that to kind of 
dumping it and mm-hmm. tell that story. I probably have a that better is, way of telling it. Know, yeah. That is the paradox I was referring to. Yeah. Um, is it that given the objectives, the policies of the company, why would they be interested in a, a vampire? For many years, people said that Ganjin Hess was made in order to cash in on the popularity of the film Blackula, which was uh, an American International Pictures low-budget film, a really interesting film, but you know widely seen as one of these ex- exploitive ripoffs of Hollywood formulas. You know, you just make quote unquote, you just you know make the faces black. And then you market the film to a largely African-American audience. To say that Kelly and Jordan wanted to turn out something that would, you know, cash in on the success of, of Blackula is not, I mean, it, it can't be true because Blackula did not even get released until after the shooting had finished. It's still kind of a, a mystery as to, you know, if it was commissioned or, or what exactly was the audience that they were thinking about. The film opened in a single Manhattan theater on, I think, 57th Street. It used to be the Playboy Theater. It was part of, for a a short time, Hugh Hefner uh, had a a, a very small theater chain. But it was, it's an art theater. You know, it was, you know, the film that was in the Playboy, I think prior to, to, to when Ganjin Hess premiered, I think was the Roman Polanski film Macbeth. So it was, it was a theater that was patronized by a, a largely white clientele, a demographic that I think was primarily interested in European films, art films, and also films with you know, relatively graphic representations of, of sexuality, which has always been a big part of the, uh, of the appeal of, of art films for uh, this American audience. So it was, it was opened in an art theater in Midtown Manhattan. I mean, there are so many stories about the film and specifically about the reception of the film that have sprung up over the years. And one of the things I try to do in the book is to try and find out the truth of these, uh, of these claims. On, you know, on the one hand, Kelly Jordan, Quentin Kelly in particular, would claim the film did no business at all. Just no one was showing up to, uh, to the theater. And Sam Wayman, for his part, remembers that there was actually very good crowds during those two weeks. If you go back and look at what Variety reported, and it has the film as doing respectably, I guess, but in retrospect, it does seem like that particular decision with how to distribute the film seems to have been the wrong way to do it, especially because they didn't wait to nurture word of mouth. They didn't wait to build an audience through word of mouth. Unfortunately, the reviews in the New York daily papers and weekly magazines were not positive at all. And Bill Gunn famously wrote this very angry letter to the New York Times complaining about the treatments that his film had gotten uh, from New York reviewers. So the film was pulled after, after two weeks Probably because Ganjin Hess was, was maybe the one project that Kelly Jordan either had in the works or had ready to go that they thought would make money. Mm. Um, because it was, for one thing, it was the only film project that they had directed by someone who had already made a film. 
Bill Gunn directed a movie called Stop three yeah. years earlier for Warner Brothers that actually never got released. It was uh, shelved. It is still very difficult to uh, to see to this day, but at least you know, he had a track record. He had actually made a film. And possibly they thought that the the genre angle, the, the genre aspects of the film would, you know, would attract an audience. But I think they were in a financial position that was pretty precarious to the point where I think Kelly made a kind of a snap judgment that this is hopeless. He personally hated the film, thought it was a disaster, and he saw no commercial viability in it. So I think he just decided after two weeks, that's it, we're pulling the plug, and I'm, I'm going to get what I can for this film. And he sold it to another distributor, this uh, exploitation distributor called Heritage. And Heritage brought in a, a film doctor an editor who had, you know, a lot of experience editing European imports for American release. And he recut the film, cut out about you know, 45 minutes of footage. Wow. Also adding five or six scenes that Gunn himself had cut from his, uh, you know, from his initial version. So it's actually, it's only because uh, of the, uh, the re-edits that we have... You know, unused scenes from the from the film and what uh what those unused scenes suggest is is that and it's i think it's been fairly well confirmed that this this film doctor this this editor for heritage was trying as best as he could to reconstruct the film according to the final draft screenplay that gun turned in the film that gun made is you know, in some respects, really different from the script. The film is a lot more elliptical. It makes you work. It, it cuts out a lot of exposition. It obscures character motivations. There's just a lot of things that happen in the film that are, that are difficult to explain. I just showed the film to my students. I teach a horror class, a class on, on horror cinema, and I showed it uh, recently, and... I was just taking questions from students about, you know, what, what happened there? Like, what, why did he do this at, at that, in that scene? It is, it, it's kind of difficult to, to follow if you're watching it for the, for the first time. But it is, it's much easier to follow and to understand the motivations of characters from the screenplay. So I think, you no, know, the heritage, uh, the editor was using Gunn's screenplay as his guide for reassembling the film into something that was more somewhat more coherent but also uh stylistically less interesting less evocative it's so hard for me comparing the two to make a a good assessment because it's so devastating to not have wayman's music in there for the most part yes it completely changes the experience so i really have a hard time i almost feel like i need to watch blood couple with the sound off someday just to see if how maybe the images but i think you're right that it's interesting that those scenes are captured now yeah because of this version and yeah it, it would be it would be great if someday there could be a dvd or blu-ray release that features as as extras those you know those scenes that were cut from the original film i don't think it's possible because the rights to both films are they're owned by different people. Chia Schultz, 
who's the producer of Ganjin has, I think is the rights holder to all of Bill Gunn's work. So he has the rights to, uh, to Ganja and has the film. I'm not sure who has the rights to blood couple. It's available to watch on DVD and also YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, the cut scenes are on, on YouTube. So yeah, it's just a really strange particular text. It's like they got scared then. They got spooked. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Spike Lee remake of Ganjin Hess that was uh, released seven or eight years ago also more or less uses Bill Gunn's script, you know, the final screenplay as its source, more so than the film. I think that movie's really valuable for that. I mean... My overall take on on Lee's version is that it's kind of like jazz, how people have different takes on it. It's just a different vibe and a different take on it. And I I definitely feel the vibe of the original more, but it is so interesting that he wanted to tell the whole story and he wanted everybody to know about Gunn. I'm trying to think of anybody else of that stature who's who's given him his flowers, so to speak. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I I think on the one hand, it's, I probably thought less of the the remake than, uh, than, than you did. That's probably the result of being so close to the original for for so long, yeah. and knowing the you know the various script drafts of inside and out. And my reaction, my initial reaction, was more like, I just don't, I just don't understand the the reason for the film. Yeah, I you know is I'm not sure that. Psycho remake vibes here where it's just so similar, but it's not the same feeling. It's better than that. But but I also just think if you have if you have Bill Gunn, Marlena Clark, Dwayne Jones, and Sam Wayman together in a movie, what are you going to do after that? You really can't remake that. Yeah, I talked, um, one of the things I talked to Sam Wayman about during our interview was how he was tangentially involved with, uh, with Spike Lee's remake. Because, of course, they use his song from Ganjin Hess in the remake. And so Wayman was was actually present during the, the church scene. The best part. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think made Spike Lee like very self-conscious while they were shooting the scene. <laughs> because they went, I guess they did a, a few run-throughs or a, a few takes. And it, it just wasn't going very well. Sam told me that you know, Spike would occasionally like look back, you know, Sam was sitting like in a pew far away from the uh, oh. action and, you know, Spike Lee would shoot him a look and then eventually he would like got up and, and yelled at cast and like, like, like the guy who wrote this song is sitting right over there. <laughs> You're going to have to, you know, if, if you, if you can't get inspired enough to, to, uh, to do this right. Yeah. Then, and pay repay your respects to the uh, to the composer to the guy who did it in the original film, and the next take was the one that they used. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do appreciate his effort there, but I think maybe in that moment you can see how he realized he wasn't. It was going to be a tribute and maybe not a triumph, but maybe that was never mm-hmm. the intention. I kind of wondered that from the beginning sure. if that was the case. Yeah, that you can't capture that magic. There was a quote by Greg in your book that really haunted me. The attempt to bury Bill Gunn began in his life. Just this feeling that you're too experimental, you're not talking about quote-unquote black issues enough. I kind of feel like from the beginning he didn't really have a chance. 
what would he have done if he could have done what he wanted? Would he have done like a kind of European style art film in America, this moderately popular thing? Or do you think he would have ever achieved popular success? Uh, um, popular success, I'm not sure if that's, I don't think that would, would ever have been his goal. I mean, certainly I think he wanted as many people to you know to experience his work as as possible you know not at the at the expense of making serious concessions or doing something that he didn't you know that he didn't want to do i mean he did he did a number of screenplays and and television show scripts more or less for you know for the money he was he was momentarily involved with a proposed sitcom for Lena Horne, which was uh, supposed to be produced by the makers or the producers of the Cosby show that never developed. And actually he might've, he was going to, he was supposed to be the head writer on that show. And I actually, I think that would have been something that, uh, oh, yeah. that he would enjoy doing because based on the, uh, you know, the, the pilot script and the series never got up, you know, it's, it's set in, a milieu, you know, Lena Horne is playing herself, essentially, kind of a, a different reality than the one she <laughs> inhabited. <laughs> she's she's Lena Horne, but she's also running this bed and breakfast type hotel in, in Harlem. And she's, you know, it's it's a very affluent and, and sophisticated milieu that you would imagine Lena Horne yeah. traveled in. And I would imagine that Gunn might have enjoyed developing that that basic idea over the course of a number of uh, a number of scripts. Yeah, Greg Tate is obituary of uh, of Bill Gunn. Certain lines from that obituary like, keep popping up uh, in my book, and they even popped up in my previous book when I talked about Bill Gunn's contributions to uh, to the landlord. For me, the the even richer quote from that uh, from that obituary is when he, you know, Greg Tate kind of hypothesizes, you know, imagine a world where Gunn had been allowed to make like a film per year after Ganjin has. Uh, um, yeah. What ha- what actually happened is it's analogous to if Miles Davis was prohibited from making music after Kind of Blue or Toni Morrison, you know, was not allowed to write after The Bluest Eye. Like, it's that kind of rupture, that yeah. you know, that kind of loss is, is uh, you know, kind of equivalent to what, what happened with Bill Gunn. And I would imagine, I mean, we have a little bit of a sense of how Gunn's art might have developed with the two-part television serial that he did. In the late seventies, early eighties, personal problems, which is a collaboration with uh, with Ishmael Reed, which is you know a, it's kind of an experimental soap opera, largely set among working and middle class black families in Harlem, and you know there are moments in that serial that definitely put you in the mind of they seem like yes, absolutely this this is the director of uh, of Ganjin Hass, yeah. despite. You know the really inhibiting the technological restriction uh, of working with with videotape at this time. There's still like some really beautifully expressive moments visually throughout the serial. It's difficult to know with regard to the writing on that on that show. How much is Reed's? How much is Gunn's? 
how much just comes from the actors you know there's leave a good deal of improvisation you know from this this wide range of really terrific actors i guess maybe the the clearest picture we might have of how gun as a as a feature filmmaker might have developed is the script for a project uh, a proposed film called territory which i talk about in my book it's a screenplay that i think he wrote the original draft sometime in the might even be the late 60s early 70s oh early then okay and came back to it several years later updating <laughs> these cultural references yeah and finally had a i guess a filmable script in the early 80s and actually got pretty far in in almost getting this uh this off the ground so territory was kind of in the vein of uh, of the landlord which i think shows how he could be a popular success because it goes down easy but it makes you think right yeah it's it's about there's three or four main characters one of whom is this white multimedia artist who has a couple of lovers one of whom is a is a black woman you know she has another lover who is a revolutionary uh you know who gets caught up in you now he's working for some secretive black nationalist group gets involved in in a some sort of assassination but the tone is it's it is kind of like the landlord it's uh you know it's it's satirical and uh and ironic and you know there are moments that are you know more broadly comic than uh, than others and there are very serious melodramatic moments and it was it reads commercial enough that a number of distributors did express interest I forget who actually greenlit the project, but in 1985, Variety published a short piece saying that production was scheduled to begin on this film with you know, a, a variety of name actors in the cast and, and headlined by Geraldine Page. She was going to play the white protagonist, his, uh, his mother, you know, and it was going to be two or $3 million budget. Ed Lackman was going to do the cinematography, and then and Jolene Page had just won an Academy Award yeah. for the trip to Bountiful, so she was actually kind of the bankable actor attached to this uh, to this project. But she died very shortly after. I think that ended the prospects for you know for this film to get uh, to get made. It's just also frustratingly out of reach like the more you're talking about this, the more I'm remembering how the book showed us a framework for what could have been. It's all laid out and it just didn't happen. <laughs> I appreciate your work on this because I do think people still just don't know about Bill Gunn. And I mean this and then the, the, the biography coming out. I really hope we're going to have a, a, a gunnaissance, you know, <laughs> that, that people will see what he was. Because even, you know, it's like even just like, look at Landlord. Maybe we can get stop out there. I realize this is probably... <laughs> But that's a truly bizarre work that would be amazing for people to see, you know? Yeah, there's there's been there's been some movements in the last uh, the last few years, maybe starting with the restoration of personal problems, uh, which was a, a multi-year effort. You know, these were yeah they were they were shot on video <laughs> in the early '80s and even professional grade video. 
was not a really stable format. So Kino did a beautiful job restoring what was still there from all of the existing materials that were, as far as I know, collecting dust in Ishmael Reed's garage or attic. (laughs) And critically speaking, that got a lot of attention when it uh, had its run starting in Metrograph in 2018. And I think that was the same year that Ganjin Hess also got a short theatrical re-release, also starting at Metrograph. You know, it was it was transferred to to DCP, so it I you know it played some theaters. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of small victories, like the the release of Ganjin the Ganjin Hess soundtrack on vinyl a few years ago, the first time it's it was ever uh, ever been available. And the Landlord is a film that I hope that maybe Criterion will do a release because it, it is a film that has really steadily been gaining a you know a pretty impressive reputation not a lot of filmmakers people like alexander payne i I think he like screened the landlord for his cast and crew before he made sideways yeah it's a lot of admirers and i hope that we eventually get you know a a really high profile dvd blu-ray release of uh, of that of that film yeah yeah, and then Nicholas Forster's biography is uh, is in the works, and yeah, I also I I don't know if I'm the person to to do it, but there is a lot of writing that Bill Gunn left behind, uh, a lot of screenplays, a lot of teleplays, a handful of novels. He did publish two novels in the course of his uh, of his his life, but there are you know there are other works, there are short stories. I talk about one short story that did get published in a one of those men's lifestyle magazines in the 60s. I talk about it in, in my book. There's a lot of writing that could fill a good-sized anthology. I'm thinking about how Kathleen Collins' daughter put right. out all that writing. That really did fill out the picture with her a great deal. So I think it would be really significant to do something like that. So before, yeah. I, before yeah. I let you go, I, I have to know, do you think there's any chance that Stop will ever be released? It's really confusing. I guess it was about seven or so years ago that there was an announcement that Warner Video, yeah, Warner Home Archive, was ready to put out a DVD of of Stop, and which you know I was shocked by because my research had turned up. Well, I mean there was a there was a screening of Stop. We know uh, in 1990. The year after Bill Gunn died, the uh, the Whitney did a uh, retrospective of his uh, of his career and showed a 35 millimeter copy of Stop that apparently came from Warner Brothers actual archive. And then the story is a little fuzzy. I've read some reports that after that the prints just vanished. I know that whenever you know whenever Stop is shown at museums, as it has been occasionally over the last you know, a couple of decades. It, it's a dub of a VHS copy, Sam Wayman's copy. It is the version that Warner Brothers commissioned. Bill Gunn, I believe, turned in his final cut of the film. I think it was close to three hours. And Warner Brothers took it from him. Someone else edited the film down to uh, to 90 minutes. That's that's the you know the surviving copy, the copy that I you know that is seen today whenever it's seen. So apparently. Warner Brothers, yeah, someone must have found maybe the original materials. 
uh, or the you know the the thirty five print that had been used for the nineteen ninety Whitney screening, and yeah, they announced we're going to put this out, and then it was pulled. The official explanation was that they couldn't work out the music rights. I'm not sure what that you know what that entails. I've seen no word since uh, about the fate of uh, of this film. Hopefully, I would be delighted if my um, my my chapter section on that uh, on that film reignites interest uh, in yes. finally like, uh, finally released. Just any notice about it at all? Well, I, Christopher, I really appreciate your work on this and and you taking Thank the you. time to talk to me about this today. I actually am leaving this conversation feeling a little hope that Gunn might get some you know recognition that he deserves. So I so much appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate it. For more information, including details about Christopher's book, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. Like the show? Rate and review it at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. My deepest appreciation to all of you who have already been spreading the word. It really helps. Thank you for listening. This is Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time.